And I must say, and I'm not just saying this to be polite or uh, saying diplomatic words, but it was really an honor to uh, have the four of you uh, with Yusuf for the year. It was really, um, I enjoyed our conversations. I wish we had more, because so we're running around a lot this year. But to have four scholars really committed to uh, to the issues uh, and engage in the issues has been really uh, a privilege, so thank you. Um, the first speaker will be Edith Shalev. And very briefly, Edith will speak about how forms of power affect attitude towards minorities. Um, Edith was previously a uh, supervisor at the Child Study Center at Schneider Hospital, um, Children's Hospital in Israel. She taught at Tel Aviv University in the School of Psychotherapy and was a fellow in Social Psychology at the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland. And she was in Clinical Psychology at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Florida. She has a PhD from Haifa University from Agna Kumara. I know that. And, uh, she also did her, she did her MA at Tel Aviv and a BA at Tel Aviv, also in Psychology and Special Education. And she has a a paper coming out with Isa in the working paper series on Hamas and uh, sort of motivate issues of motivation to murder to, to kill for cause. It's a very uh, good paper and will be coming out shortly. So, Dr. Shalev. <laughs> so, uh, I suggest we, because I'm going to present data that I uh, collected the last two weeks. Um, I suggest uh, that we use this form as uh, brainstorming. Um, I would like to present to the my way of thinking of ideas, and I would like to hear like, if you have suggestions how to continue these, uh, these studies. So actually, I will start with a part from the Hamas Charter, which was uh, the inspiration for this study. Um, as you can see, um, the, um, I'm not going to talk about the Hamas Charter. I'm going to just look at this part. It's just cited from there. And you can see uh, the frequency of the word, the association, money, Jews, money, control. Um, and this is a kind of thing that we, we know from everyday basis. I talk to my scholars here historians, and they all said, well, this is common knowledge. Um, but in psychology, uh, we don't look at things as common knowledge. We should uh, empirically validate them. And I was curious to see um, what is the association between money and Jews, or money and attitude towards minorities? Is it real? What, what, how does money affect our life? Do we really, uh, when we have money or when we don't have money, does it affect our attitudes? And, and I don't talk about chronic situations where somebody is rich or poor. I'm talking about, and I, I will expand the theory, but we actually talk about situations where we feel that we have more money or less money. How does it affect us on everyday basis? Because the idea underlying it is that there's no such a thing as chronic situation. Like we, we change our attitudes all the time, and we are affected by cues, contextual cues, uh, like uh, things that we read, situations, images. All of these affect us on everyday basis. And I was specifically curious about the association between money and uh, Jews or minorities in general. So here is another uh, citation from uh, something that I found in the internet. This is actually a poem about the Jews. Uh, again, you can see the association, uh, Jews and money, and the money is the god of the Jews. Uh, 
And so uh, here's something that I already explained is that if we want to look at this association uh, from a psychological point of view, we should, uh, and this is also like explain us the methodology, we should like, uh, we, we, uh, we need to understand that actually uh, the association, money and something affect our behavior uh, immediately. So if somebody reads a text, uh, in the text he sees the word money, money, money like 10 times, then his behavior should be congruent to the text. But we don't know exactly what is the association. Maybe money uh, causes us to be more generous. Maybe money causes us to be more uh, racist. We don't know what it is. We should study this empirically. So this is actually the theory that we see if we see images, different kind of images. It could be symbols, it could be words, it could be just like uh, faces of people. Everything affects our behavior in a congruent way. So, the first question was, what is the psychological effect of having money? And uh, what is the psychological effect of not having money? Um, how does uh, uh, the power between, the association between money and power affect our attitudes towards minorities? And does the uh, association between money and power specifically associated with Jews? Or is it that we just uh, judge the world in general uh, in terms of like, uh, money or no money, like, and not, and not specifically something that we pick on Jews. So I'll, first uh, thing that we, when we do an empirical research, you should look and see what is in the literature. So uh, the literature shows that uh, reminders of money causes people to be uh, less helpful. Uh, and it's not, and this is very interesting because it's not that we, when we think of money that someone else has. It, when, we, when we experience having money, we become less helpful and we become more lonely. We don't care about people. Uh, we, we don't try to share. We don't try to help people. And uh, this actually was uh, uh, the citation. It was like published in Science. This is a major journal. And it's kind of interesting because we usually uh, think of, power, of money as something that is helpful. Uh, so uh, and other, other uh, uh, findings show the thoughts of uh, losing money, thought of having money um, is like, it, it kind of like blunted the pain of being rejected, thoughts of losing money in contrast increases the pain of rejection. So that means that money is something that actually on the one hand it's like a, kind of like recovery from social pain, on the other hand when we have money we don't really care about other people. But uh, the association between money and uh, racial attitudes or attitudes toward minorities was not studied, studied and this is what I did uh, in study one. So if the experience of having money is associated to reduced helpfulness towards other, preference of uh, play alone, work alone, and put uh, more physical distance, we would expect that when primed with money, individuals would be also higher in negative attitudes towards minorities, However, with, when primed with uh, not having money, individuals will be, uh, will be lower in negative attitudes towards minorities. And this is kind of like uh, counterintuitive because we usually think that when people don't have money, then they become more racist, or then they become helpless, or then they become... And so my prediction was opposite, that when we have money, then we, maybe we want to keep the money. We wanna, preserve the, man, uh, the, the power, so that's why, and this is kind of thing that I want to consult you, like how do you think, what's the theory, because like in psychology we don't like have, uh, uh, you know, a preliminary theory that we project on the findings, 
we uh, look what we have, and then we sample by sample, and then we, uh, we try to uh, generalize it into uh, structure theory. So I don't know what the theory is yet. So study one, in study one, I actually, uh, it was uh, conducted here in Woosley Hall. Uh, 36 undergraduate and the, like uh, 34 um, females, 30 males. They uh, participated in, in the study in, ex in exchange for two dollars. Uh, actually, all of them Yale students. And um, the the study was presented as a questionnaire on social attitudes. Uh, they were uh, uh, first uh, at first we give them consent form. They need to agree for the study, um, and uh, they were asked to recall a life experience. One group were asked to, to recall life experience where they had money, and the other group were asked to, to experience uh, uh, life experience where, where they didn't have money, and just to write it up, just to imagine it, like uh, some kind of visual imagery, and to write up a paragraph, that's all. And, and then they were just asked to fill out a survey. Uh, the survey is called, uh, the, uh, it's called the Social Dominance Scale. So here is the uh, instruction. Think about a time where you had a lot of money. Think about it. And then one group only were asked to think about a time where they had money. The other group only think about that they money. And then a social dominance scale. This is a scale that study attitudes towards minorities. Uh, and in general, attitudes towards social hierarchy. So uh, it actually includes 16 uh, statements uh, rated from 1 to 7. And here are some samples uh, of the scale. Uh, some groups of people are simply inferior to other groups. If certain groups uh, stay in their place, we would have fewer problems. So this scale is actually correlated with racism, sexism, nationality, and so forth. Uh, and so there's the uh, hypothesis was that uh, experience of having money as compared to not having money would be associated with higher scores in the social dominance scale. Uh, so I did a t-test. What is really important here is just to see that uh, the mean of the, uh, the, the group that uh, there was significant difference in social dominance scores for money and no money between the two groups. So the group that, so actually, uh, all yes, students are not racist because like, if the scale is one, from one to seven, you can see that in the higher group it was 381, which is still uh, in the average, but uh, there was a, a significant difference between the group that was primed with experience of having money and the group that was primed with not having money, showing that money, have, the experience of having money, really affects our attitudes and we become even temporarily more uh, uh, like uh, we want to preserve the power, we don't want to share it, we want to uh, keep it. And this is interesting to me at least. Uh, so in study two, um, I was interested to see, study one was just uh, tested the general association between money and attitude towards minorities. Study two, uh, the goal was to see if when we have money, do we want, who do we want to share it with? Do we want, is like if we, if, if we have like the choice to uh, keep the money or to share the money with either Jew, American Jew, Asian Jew, uh, I'm sorry, Asian American, Afro-American or Greek American, what, what do you, are we going to find any difference between the group? And so I used here a very uh, um, uh, useful paradigm from social psychology. This is called the dictator game. And in the dictator game, we actually, uh, it, it's like hypothetic situation. Sometimes we do it with real money. I did it hypothetically because I don't have money. So <laughs> I just, um, I did it hypothetically. So the participants were given uh, a script and they, they, they said, okay, suppose that you have $100,000. 
$10. You, you just got it like as a present, you have $10, you can keep part of the money, and you can share part of the money, and you can decide uh, how, much, how much money you want to keep, how, my, how, how much money you want to share, uh, and, and then the, the, the person that you can share the money with was either uh, Asian American, Afro American, American Jew, or um, or uh, I don't know, I don't remember the fourth group, but it was Greek. Uh, okay, Greek. Greek uh, so here the hypothesis was kind of like interesting. I, I mean, actually I didn't know what to predict because on the one hand, if we don't like Jew, if like if Jews are associated with money then on the one hand, maybe we want to share our money with the Jews more than other groups because if we give the money to the Jews, maybe we get something in return, like endowment. But on the other hand, we could predict the opposite. We could say, okay, if Jews have money, why would we give them more? I mean, uh, so it's like, it depends like, uh, so this is why we need to do study three and study four. But actually the prediction was that uh, we will, Jews will get less money then uh, the, uh, more money than the other groups, and uh, what I found, so uh, so actually, uh, 69 students, again, your students, uh, the study was uh, done, he conducted here in Lucy Hall, uh, and they uh, participated in the study in exchange for $2. Uh, and uh, okay, so here is exactly what I asked them to do. Uh, suppose that you get $10, you can keep it, you can share it, uh, to, uh, for like, so I have four different groups. And so the initial results, I didn't bring the numbers because the results were not significant and because the sample was too small. But what was interesting that I found is a uh, uh, tendency to share more money with Jews. And then the question is why? Is it like because of like some kind of hidden anti-Semitism or maybe we like the Jews more or like what, what is there? And on the other hand, the tendency to share, was a tendency to share less money uh, with Afro-Americans as compared to other groups. So uh, this is kind of interesting. I don't know exactly uh, what is uh, the, the, the... So in general, uh, the findings of the two studies showing that uh, uh, the financial power is associated with support uh, in social hierarchy. The more money we have, the less uh, uh, the, the less uh, democratic or the less, uh, you know, the less uh, motivation we have to share our power with other groups. Uh, and that initial finding shows uh, that individuals share more money with, tend to, or hypothetically, agree to share more money with Jews than with other minorities. So uh, what will be the future uh, directions for uh, studies? So one thing I started to do, um, and I still didn't uh, collect the data, uh, I. Uh, like some kind of extension to study one, because in study one I only checked the ex experience of me having money or me not having money. So now I thought, okay, but the difference if I have money or someone else has money. So I started to collect data uh, that uh, the participants need to experience a situation where uh, someone, someone else close has money and someone else distant has money. And like as compared to someone else close don't have, doesn't have money, someone else close doesn't, uh, someone else distant doesn't have money. And what was interesting was just like 10 participants. So it shows that the highest, uh, and, and again, social dominance scale. So the highest uh, scores of racism were found in the group that uh, were asked to imagine that someone close uh, has uh, more money, has a lot of money. So like family member or close friend. And this could uh, give us some kind of direction for future research that maybe Jews are perceived as close. 
or as neighbors, not strangers, somebody, people that are, are uh, you know, associated with the people that we close to, like we, we just like, like the Jews, but they have more money, so maybe the mechanism is some kind of social comparison or jealousy, I don't know. Another thing uh, is to, that I should do in future, because I just collected the data here in Muslim Hall, and yes, students are, you know, not racist, and we have like, uh, some kind of like, most of them are coming from a specific social economic uh, group. It's not like, it, uh, so the sample is not, is pretty is homogeneous. So I think uh, in future what I need to do is just to elaborate it and to study, the, to, to collect data uh, like, like from non-students. Non uh, and um, and uh, another thing that I thought that could be interesting is that it's not enough to see, uh, to, to look at the association between money, like money, power, and Jews. Like maybe the interpret, the hidden interpretation is that the Jews, uh, they, they like something, co co uh, something connected with corruption. Like uh, money and Jews, and like money is corruption, and Jews are corrupted. So something like that, something because like, it's not enough. Because I found that okay, experience that we, when we have money, we we become less, uh, you know, tolerant to other other people, but. But maybe it's not enough to explain some kind of hidden form of anti-Semitism, if at all. Uh, so actually, that would be all. I think uh, one, one more thing that uh, I, I should say, that uh, these studies are different than the, the, general thing, the general notion that we uh, uh, know, or that I, at least me, heard about anti-Semitism in, in several ways. One is that I didn't study anti-Semitism or anything like in, in uh, different, uh, like I studied it here in the United States, where we, if, we, if we have racism, it's more uh, hidden, it's not something explicit. This is an, an among students, of course, it's more uh, implicit. The other thing is that the uh, theoretical methodology that I used is not uh, just to interview people, because we don't uh, believe in psychology that when, when you interview people, you get, um, you get uh, uh, accurate information. You should actually use more uh, manipulative strategies to get uh, the to, to get what is there. And and so if I went like with if I like just okay interview people, what do you think about my, maybe I, I maybe I would find something, but I'm not sure that this is exactly uh, it because there is like many biases of uh, self-report. And um, so so uh, so this is the this is the other thing that I wanted to say. Okay, actually that's all. I would really appreciate if you have questions, suggestions for uh, future research. Um, yeah. um, <coughs> I'm sorry. You're Miss Shalit. 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 I'm sorry. So, so Miss Shalit, um, I'm wondering. You do the second study, and you say it's statistically not significant. So I'm wondering if you want to change your slide from the word shows to suggest. Yes, I don't know, yeah, absolutely. Because no, it's shows yet. even though it's not statistically significant, which you know as a psychologist, but I don't, I only know what that term says. I don't know how you find out significance. It points you in some direction, so there must be something from the data or the debriefing you could say about it. Otherwise, you're sort of saying, well, my study wasn't significant, but this is how I. There's tendency, okay, it means that there's tendency, kind of thing for the, the, so you need to, to increase the sample because you see some kind of differences, 
but these differences could be uh, random because the sample is too small. And so you can see, okay, but it, so if, when, when it's significant, it means that you pass some kind of statistical statistical, uh, test. statistical test that shows that it's not random. So what right. I saw, because it's very a small sample, uh, so I, I couldn't, I saw tendency. Well, how many were in the second study? 69? 60, 60, uh, 60 something, but it's like four different groups. So it's like 15 or something like that. Okay, it's 69, because it wasn't that much smaller than the first. It's just the numbers didn't come out that, that much different. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe there's other data in the 69. Yeah, but I don't know about check. the study. But sure, I, I don't I mean, know about you know, the study. Just throw it away. I mean, I guess I'm yeah, saying there must be lots of scholars who come out with that problem where the numbers don't show significant difference, but the studies should still worth something for something. No, it doesn't you know worth I mean? anything at this point. Right? I should collect more data. This is pilot study, so in pilot study we just see if, uh, because it was not studied empirically, though like we always say Jews are mania, nobody did any study. So it just, you, you, uh, you want like, to see what is there, and then like if, if there's something at all or not. So this is what I did, this is a pilot study, and then I think that there is potential. I think okay. it should be a label already, but not more than that. Uh, one question, did you take uh, the background of the respondents? Yes, mm -hmm. ethnicity, yeah. age, uh, I know it is, it's interesting. So in study one, I, I didn't find any uh, correlation between the ethnicity or uh, uh, tendency to, uh, to the social dominance scale. In study two, uh, the sample is again too small, so it was like five. I, I just talked about it uh, in the group. Like I, like I, I had like two Germans. They had the tendency to give more money to Jews. And like um, most, uh, most of the most of the uh, uh, most of the sample was uh, was uh, included like white people. I didn't see anything in the data, but I think it's an important uh, direction to study. And then, and then also, I was going to say I think that this, the, the samples, uh, the population of the sample, are you know it's a small, it's a very elite group of exactly. people with a certain culture, maybe exactly. they're driven to succeed and. Obtain power in a sense. This is what they're being right. educated to do. Yes. Uh, so that has to have an impact, and it could be interesting to compare exactly. to other groups of, in the population. Yes. And the only other comment I'd say, you know, the, the economic uh, crisis or the economic condition, <coughs> I think, has a very obviously powerful effect on the media and the economy. How the economy has been affected and the portrayal of it in the media is making people feel, to some extent, an insecurity about the. Like to show people to have them, this is another study that could be done. Have people like read a newspaper, part of the newspaper about the economical situation, uh, and then to see if this affects uh, social dominance. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then one thing, I know some people that are extraordinarily wealthy, and for all sorts of perhaps psychological reasons in their lives, they feel that they're on the verge of uh, being impoverished. People survive the wars, but people have a history where they, you know, I know people literally have millions of dollars, but they won't turn on the air conditioner because it's too expensive, even though they would like to turn it off. Really. You know, there's people with all sorts of uh, perceptions yes. of wealth and security. Yes. So I don't know how you. So you wealth. Know, uh, so you think that wealth is associated with insecurity? No, I don't know. What, what, some people may feel very wealthy with um, a few dollars in their bank accounts, others may not. So, so, so I don't know.
This is very interesting, like a media, mediation that Charles uh, suggests to look at mediation as like an attachment or a sense of security. How does it mediate the connection, the possible association between money and racism? So uh, it's like know, it's something, it's a very interesting stuff. Like they feel very rich with $20 in his or her pocket and going on the yes. evening of the town, they feel great. So, so it's like, that, that perception of being rich is compared to the real money that you make. Okay. I, I am also a social psychologist, and I'd like to tell a little story first and then give some thoughts. The story is, um, and, and I'm also the president for the state of Connecticut, of a nationwide nonprofit that basically helps to be better managers of their own money, some of whom have a lot of money most, and invested themselves, some invested with the help of uh, a finance person, and there's some mixtures. Okay, let's say you had $10,000, all right? Where did this $10,000 come from? Let us say there's three possibilities. One, you inherited it. Two, you earned it. And three, you won it in the lottery. It's the same $10,000. If you work for the money, the research has shown that you will use that $10,000 to pay down your mortgage or pay down significant bills. If you won the money in the lottery, the feeling is the research has shown the same, it's the same check for $10,000 will be used to go on a vacation or buy a watch or some kind of splurge. And third, if you inherited the $10,000, that money will be used to honor in some way and respect the values of the person who gave it to you. It is the same amount of money, but it is handled in entirely different ways because of its origin. Um, and, and I think that that's really important in what you're trying to do. That's, that's Roman numeral one. Roman numeral two, is that um, I think, as Charles said, the origin of the people, that not only the origin of the people where their ethnic and religious origin of each of these subjects, where they came from, but if you ask students here versus Jewish students in Colorado or in Berkeley, you're going to get, I would imagine, three different answers versus if you ask Jewish students in New York City. I think there's a lot of, um, questions around a lot of the things. I think what you're trying to do is really important, but I think there's an awful lot of questions that can quote-unquote contaminate the research as well as the results. The location of where you're asking it, if the person is with another person, um, the amount of money that you're asking, if you're asking students in comparison to um, adults. There's now showing, uh, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal have had articles saying that a lot of the, the um, bashing of Goldman Sachs was attributed to anti-Semitism. And not just what's happening now, right now, last week, but what's been going on for the last couple of months. That's a whole different order of magnitude. And my concern is that people will take your results and use it in whatever way they, they want to. So I think you have to be really, really no, this careful. Is this a, is a very explosive this is a topic. pilot study. This is not the, not the pilot study. Not the pilot study. The work that you're going to do after. Um, you know, the, the, the population that will be statistically. So usually what you do uh, when you publish, you uh, actually, uh, you should give data, you should describe the sample, 
And then uh, if the sample is, uh, is homogeneous, of course, it limits uh, the, the ability to generalize the finding. But no study, uh, I mean, uh, unless like you do like national national surveys or something, and then you have like, usually uh, if you you want to study specific topics, so you have like some kind of characteristics for the sample, and then I, I, I and then you are finding. So, so I'm, but I'm explaining not to you. I'm explaining to everybody. So uh, of course, I, but what I did here is uh, as an initial initial. Uh, um, you know, check like pilot study to see what is there. Uh, not more than that, so no need to worry. Uh, I don't think that they are, the, this is like the preliminary study. We usually do like six, seven studies and should we start something. We're running out of time, so Professor Reynos and then... I, I agree with what's been said about the future study. It should be a more random sample. I mean, you didn't, uh, these were not Jewish students, right? they were general students, right? Once Just the yeah, students, yeah, uh, some yeah. of them. Uh, and they should be uh, non-students and uh, including a general uh, random sample of, of uh, opinion across adults yes. and young people. The second, uh, even then you have a problem of the so-called Hawthorne effect. You go there and you talk to them, <coughs> they want to know what you really want them to say. You have to be careful about that, that you, they don't, anticipate the answer you want. Yes, of course. And that ha that's very subtle yes. and very difficult to overcome. Yes, yes, yes. The third thing yes. I want to say is that uh, it would be good for the future study mm -hmm. to ask people, why do you think Jews have money? Did it come from... Absolutely. You know, did they come because they're corrupt or, they, or because they were, not, they were yes. forced into money lending? Yes. You know, there are different, very important differences. Yes. Uh, and that, I think, makes a lot of difference as to why they think Usually associated with money. Yes, yes. Um, and then uh, it might be good if you could, it's a different story. There are other groups like overseas Chinese who have similar characteristics to the Jews. You know, maybe minorities, especially if they're prohibited from doing certain things, as the Jews always were, forces them into activities which are then money making. And the overseas Chinese have a similar problem in Indonesia and in India and you know, in other countries in Asia. That would be another story. I'm not saying... Yes, of course, it's another story. Uh, I just wanted to say about uh, what you said about the uh, participants guessing the, the study goal. What you, what you so what you do is after you run the study, you just give them debriefing and then you ask them, do you have an idea what did we try to study? And so if they say yes, uh, they, if, they, if they guess the study goal, so that you should not use the data. Because like, if you want to study implicit association, you should not use the Again, they may not tell you what they're going to think. So, yeah. But I really agree with uh, all, all the important notes. Well, just to uh, address the point made by this lady sitting over here, you said how the money is obtained determines how it's spent. Contributes, yes. I take very strong exception to that. I would think that the personality of the person will determine how the money is spent, not how it's obtained. Well, I'm, I'm sure that the personality of the person contributes to it, but um, these were statistically significant studies that were done um, at major, uh, well, at, at, and not, not with students, with adults. Um, and there's a, Harvard has a symposium every year about uh, research and finance and money, and that's been a running theme for the last five years. People continue to do research on that theme. So, you know, you certainly have your thoughts, but the the um, the research has shown 
what I said to everyone. I was just wondering if how much of who you are as a researcher, they see you have an accent, you're white, could possibly affect the answers they're willing to give you. Well, uh, so the idea of, uh, I didn't explain it, because uh, um, I, I didn't explain the, the, whole, the whole thing. So the theoretical idea is that we call it priming. That I give them what I gave them to read, like a, think of the experience of having money, and then give them a survey, which is like uh, presumably unrelated to what they did before. So the idea is that the experience of having money will affect the way that they, they fill out the survey. And so if I found, uh, you know, if I have two groups, one group had like money, one group doesn't have money, and then I found something, I found like a difference between the groups, so that means that there is difference. So if my, I, my ex, I was the same, I mean, I did the whole study, so I didn't have any uh, research assistant, so like if I sampled the whole student, they got, everybody got my, my, my accent and everything, so the idea is it, it didn't affect anything, because it, like, all the participants got, got the same treatment. And, uh, but, but even if I had like an RA, and so I, maybe I should like statistically see, like, like to compare the participants that I did with the participants that the RA did, and then to see if there's difference. But in this case, there was no, no RA. So, so indeed, thank, uh, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. So our next speaker is Michelle. So Michelle Steve is going to speak today about, I think we'll, Michelle will speak and then we'll take a break uh, with the other speakers. So Michelle's topic is the ultimate betrayal, human rights groups, genocide and totalitarianism, totalitarianism in the post-war era. Michelle is a postdoctoral research associate with us at ESA and she's worked for several organizations in the area of human rights, so she has practical experience. She worked with the Eurasia Group. Human Rights Watch, the Danish Refugee Council, Revenue Watch Institute, and the American Jewish Committee, AJC. She did a doctorate degree in political science at Columbia University, and her thesis analyzed transitional justice uh, institutions in Africa. She's written articles, academic articles, as well as published in the Christian Science Monitor, the World uh, Today, World Politics Review, and the World Journal, the World Policy Journal. And um, her work ESA has been on uh, the intellectual components of left-wing, or some of the left-wing uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Thank you, Michelle. Um, no PowerPoint, sorry. <laughs> Great anti technology. Twitter sometimes. Yeah, um, so my research has been focused on the human rights and international law arguments to advance anti-Zionist claims. Over the past decade, if you follow the news, um, since the outbreak of the Second Antifada, especially after Israel's wars with Hezbollah and Hamas, criticisms of Israel's treatment of Palestinians and other Arabs in the name of human rights and international law have dramatically increased, both in terms of their quantity and in terms of the qualitative seriousness of these claims. Over the past decade, the number of human rights reports criticizing Israel has, has certainly increased and I think now constitutes a disproportionately high amount of the overall output of human rights groups. Just looking at the organization Human Rights Watch, they admit that their reports on Israel over the past decade constitute 
15% of the overall output of the Middle East Division. Um, the Middle East Division covers 17 countries. So, so the fact that one country is 15% of the Middle East Division's overall output, I think, certainly suggests that it's a, a disproportionate amount at this point. But in addition, the qualitative content of the criticisms has become far more serious. During Israel's wars against Hezbollah and Hamas, Israel was accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And these are crimes which are subject to universal jurisdiction in international law. Um, so these, these criticisms were made after both the 2006 Lebanon war and the more recent war against Hamas in Gaza. Uh, on the other side, aside from what these reports say, I think it's really important to take note of what they don't say. These reports end up being strangely silent about the fact that both Hezbollah and Hamas articulate uh, what I would describe as totalitarian ideologies. And I'm using Hannah Arendt's concept of totalitarianism, um, which is fundamentally about calling for the extermination of a group from the earth. Uh, for example, the Hamas Charter explicitly calls for Israel's destruction and uh, the elimination of a political community, and I think that you can also argue that it calls for the genocide of, of the Jews. So the stresses and silences of human rights groups, the very serious criticisms of Israel, and the silences about totalitarian ideologies have huge moral and political implications. First, these criticisms of Israel in the name of human rights and international law have correlated with a gradual erosion of Israel's legitimacy and the increasing sway of anti-Zionist arguments. I think that you can see this in the growth of boycott movements against Israel on university campuses around the world, um, which rely very prominently on human rights arguments and international law arguments. I think you can see this in the articles of Tony Jutt, um, his 2003 article in the New York Review of Books, where he calls for the one-state solution, and also in the New York Times, where uh, the one-state solution is now seriously discussed. And so these are liberal left publications, not fringe far left publications. So again, the, the human rights arguments are central to these anti-Zionist claims, uh, as well as to the way they are positively received. The Israeli government now acknowledges the link between criticisms of Israel in the, in the name of human rights and Israel's eroding legitimacy. President Netanyahu recently identified the Goldstone Report as one of Israel's three most serious national security challenges, along with the peace process with the Palestinians and along with the Iranian nuclear threat. Uh, second, the silences of the human rights reports and, and the failure to illuminate the totalitarian ideologies of radical Islamist groups are significant in that they help to publicly legitimate radical Islamist groups as normal, rational, political so I think the silences um, you know, also have huge consequences. These consequences are, are a result of the enormous impact that human rights groups now exert on, on public opinion. They, they enjoy what has been called the halo effect. And so they are now the primary molders of public opinion about morality and justice in foreign affairs. So given the importance of these arguments, my purpose is to try and understand and explain the assault on Israel in the name of human rights. And if you were here for Professor Yankira's lecture a few, a few days ago, um, what his, his book does, he didn't really go into his talk, but his book really tries to analyze the, the Holocaust arguments in anti-Zionist discourse. So I'm trying to get into another trope of anti-Zionist discourse, which is um, related to the human rights arguments. 
Okay. So one explanation of these reports is that they are the result of anti-Semitism and its related phenomenon, Jewish self-hatred, uh, since many of the groups and individuals who articulate these criticisms happen to be Jewish. A few responses. First, though I do think anti-Zionism in general, and specifically the human rights criticisms of Israel, are somehow related to the historical phenomenon of anti-Semitism. I really don't think it's worthwhile or illuminating to focus on this issue as such. Even the concept of anti-Semitism, in my mind, elides the specificities of Jew hatred over, over the centuries. And I think as intellectuals, we have to be much more precise in, in identifying the specific arguments against Jews or, or Israel. So the concept of anti-Semitism, to, to just use it, I don't think it tells us very much. I think it's a way of saying that it's bad and it's dangerous, which I agree with. But I don't think it helps us to really identify in a precise way the arguments um, that we that we need to respond to. Um, second, since I myself worked for Human Rights Watch, all of my work prior to this has been focused on Africa, um, I was able to detect certain patterns in the work of human rights groups um, since they uh, you know since they originated in the 1960s. So I think that it's a much larger phenomenon. Um, in many other examples, such as Cambodia in the 1970s, Iraq in the 1980s, and also uh, Rwanda in the 1990s, human rights groups failed to detect and combat totalitarian ideas and movements before they triumphed, which was obviously a catastrophe for human rights. Samantha Power, in her magisterial book, um, A Problem from Hell on, on Genocide, she even reports uh, in that book how in both Cambodia and Iraq, Amnesty International tried to downplay the accounts of refugees fleeing the violence. Um, they labeled Pol Pot's slaughter and Saddam Hussein's uh, arguably genocidal camp campaign against the Kurds as extrajudicial executions, which really, uh, you know, I think failed to illuminate at the time the, uh, the precise nature of the, the ethnic-based slaughter that was occurring. So, so I think there is a larger pattern. In Rwanda, the human rights groups made a series of uh, analytic errors, in my opinion. First, though the Hutu parties openly advertised their intentions to slaughter Tutsis, beginning around 1991, no human rights groups, no human rights group reported on this um, when, it, when it was happening. Second, once the violence started, the groups, the human rights groups did spring into action, but even then they interchangeably labeled the violence war crimes and genocide, again confusing, conceptually confusing the issue. Third, they only recommended trials as a solution to the violence, and I think the gap between the prescription and the description, I think, led people to um, distrust the argument that it was genocide. I mean, if you say there's a genocide and you call for trials, you really start to doubt then the description of, of the violence, because, I mean, it's pretty clear that, you know, to establish a trial in the, in the middle of a genocide, it is not going to end the violence. So it's my observation of these patterns and silences and the stresses of human rights groups that led me to speculate that there's a much larger intellectual distortion going on. Um, and this has manifested itself, I think, most visibly in reports on the Arab-Israeli conflict, but it's certainly not re unique to the reports of that region. The second explanation for uh, these, human rights, well, these human rights reports, and the one that's really peddled by the groups themselves, is that these reports are simply unbiased, objective applications of international law. They're just applying international law, which is out there, to uh, the conflicts at hand. A few responses to this. 
First, this view of international law does not accord with contemporary debates over domestic law and jurisprudence. There's a, there's a very rich debate over how domestic law works, and it's generally understood that there is no simple application of law to a particular situation. It's a process of interpretation of law to a particular situation. So the position of human rights groups, when viewed from the perspective of domestic law, is, is very simplistic. Second, the process of applying international law is far more fraught with complications than domestic jurisprudence. There are three major bodies of international law that govern political violence. Uh, first of all, there are the laws that govern wars, which you've been hearing a lot about lately, um, which are the laws of war, and those derive from the Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols, which were signed in 1977. Second, there's uh, a body of law that, that governs the ultimate crime, genocide, which derives from the Genocide Convention, signed in 1948. Third, there, uh, there's also a body of law which governs pol political violence during peacetime, such as um, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And these derive from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, also signed in 1948. So the process of even identifying which body of international law to apply to situations of violence is intertwined with um, a philosophical and political debate over, over what you define war. Uh, when do you call outbreaks of violence war? And it's only, um, and it's only when, uh, so it's only when you define it as war that you, you then invoke the, the Geneva Convention and, and the laws of war. So, and this was the essence of the debate between the Bush administration and human rights groups over the response to 9-11. Um, the Bush administration wanted to define it as war and invoke the Geneva Conventions um, and its interpretations of the Geneva Conventions, but the human rights groups actually wanted to define it as a law and order problem where domestic, regular domestic law applied and also the, the human rights laws that don't apply to situations of war, which are a lot less permissive. So it's much, much more realistic to say that the arguments of human rights groups are interpretations. Um, and I think that's all missed in our current discussions. I mean, we simply treat the reports of human rights, human rights groups as this is international law. And there's no understanding, I think, uh, at least in the popular ima imagination, that these are interpretations of law. So my theory um, focuses on the role of an ideology, an intellectual system, which has shaped the actions and practices of human rights groups. This intellectual system is what determines what types of violence human rights groups prioritize, the way they define and frame that violence, and their choice of solutions. This new intellectual system has been created and articulated by a new and very powerful class of intellectuals, uh, international lawyers, so my research is also a sociological analysis of uh, the rise and, and influence of a new class of intellectuals. Now, um, if you're familiar with the work of the, the, the French um, philosopher Raymond, Raymond Aron, he wrote um, an important book in 1950, The Opium of the Intellectuals, where he analyzed the role of intellectuals, European intellectuals, in developing Marxist doctrines, which he argued was um, important to the survival of communism as a, as a political movement. Um, so he was analyzing the role of, of intellectuals. So I'm tracing the, uh, the, the intellectual history of this modern human rights movement and, and looking 
and its spokespersons as this, uh, these, this new class of intellectuals, very influential class of intellectuals. Some of the authors that I am looking at that I think are very important to the human rights movement today are um, the German legal theorist Hirsch Lauterpacht, don't know how to pronounce his name, but he was one of the leading international lawyers of, of the century. He was born in 1897 in, in Central Europe. Um, he, he ended up having to leave. He was uh, you know, in Austria-Hungary, had to leave there because of anti-Semitism, went to Germany, um, even though he converted to Catholicism, and eventually had to flee to America. And he develops uh, really a seminal text for the modern human rights movement called the International Law of Human Rights. A second theorist is Hans Kelsen, um, also a Jew born in Prague in 1890, uh, in 1891. Um, also loses his his job for political reasons, um, and he also ends up in, in in the United States. The more recent scholars who draw on the work of, of these German theorists are uh, Richard Falk, who's a professor of international law at Princeton, and now the special rapporteur of the. Um, what is it, the so-called, the UN Special Rapporteur for the so-called Occupied Palestinian Territories. And Louis Henkin, a, a professor of international law at, at Columbia. So, um, you know, the, the people in the human rights groups don't often examine the intellectual assumptions that they are working from, but it's these theorists, these legal scholars that kind of have developed their, the ideas which they put into practice. So in my mind, these international lawyers have developed several specific myths, which I'm trying to identify and describe. And these myths shape the practice of human rights groups. And I'll just go into one myth so um, I can show you how it might shape or distort the perspective of human rights groups. Am I doing on time? Sorry. Okay. Um, so in my mind, one of the reasons human rights groups don't seem to notice or care very much about the existence of totalitarian movements is that they believe that international law does and should only focus on individuals, both individual perpetrators and individual victims. They see international relations as fundamentally about the actions of individuals, where organized political movements and their doctrines and ideologies are relatively unimportant. The core foundational myth of the human rights movement is that after the, internet, after the uh, Second World War, the nature of international law completely shifted its focus. Whereas before it used to focus on states, after the war, international law was primarily focused on the rights of individuals. This view is commonplace among human rights activists, and many scholars have coined labels such as cosmopolitan law and, and humanities law to describe this new international law of individual human rights. Um, now, this view of international law has a, has a history, um, and it comes from Lauterbach, from his view, it, from his book International Law and Human Rights. And uh, you know, I'll just give you a quote, some evidence for what I'm saying today um, from his book. Um, Lauterbach argued that as a result of the Charter of the United Nations, as well as of other changes in international law, the individual has acquired a status and a stature which have transformed him from an object of international compassion into a subject of international right. For insofar as international law is embodied in the charter and elsewhere recognizes fundamental rights of the individual independent of the law of the state, to that extent it constitutes the individual as a subject of the law of nations. And so Lauterbach pointed to the UN Charter, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and also the precedence of the Nuremberg trial. Um, 
So he made two points about the Nuremberg trial, both of which I'm going to critique, just to show you my method, which is to, um, to look at the ideology and then to go back uh, to the history and, and unearth an alternative interpretation of these international legal precedents. Um, so Lauterbacht argued that um, uh, he, he saw the prosecution of Nazi leaders for crimes against humanity at Nuremberg as an acknowledgment of the, quote, fundamental rights of the individual recognized by international law. Second, Lauterpacht argued that the central achievement of the Nuremberg judgment was to establish individual criminal accountability for crimes committed on behalf of the German state. In his, in his mind, the judgment rejected all notions of collective responsibility and collective punishment. And he also saw the Genocide Convention in a similar light, that its central convention, its central achievement was to establish individual liability for the crime of genocide. In my mind, this is a drastic simplification of the achievements of the Nuremberg trial and the Genocide Convention. And I think this view is dangerous because it reduces the post-war legal concepts to the types of impotent liberal ideas that proved so defenseless in Europe in the 1930s. In fact, the architects of the post-war order really intended to strengthen liberalism with more robust legal categories and ideas that could be used to detect and fight totalitarianism in the future. First, the concept of crimes against humanity was not intended to refer to crimes against individuals. It was intended to describe the crimes committed against the Jews as Jews. Um, in general, um, the Nuremberg trial did not prioritize the crimes against the Jews. I don't know how much you all know about the Nuremberg trial, but it really focused on the crime of aggression and, um, and also war crimes. But at that time, um, the, the slaughter of Jews as Jews was not central to our understanding of what had happened in, in World War II. So um, the way that they, it was a very imprecise definition that the Nuremberg Charter used, but this is how they defined crimes against humanity as, quote, murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation, and other inhumane acts committed against any civilian population before or during the war, or persecutions on political, racial, or religious grounds uh, in execution of or in connection with any crime within the jurisdiction of the tribunal. A very clumsy definition. But nonetheless, there was an emphasis on extermination and also on violence on political, race, racial, or religious grounds. So. Again, the political part, you know, it's, it's doesn't, you know, that's a little more difficult, but the, the major intent of the concept was to get at the crimes against Jews as a group, the crimes against Jews because of their, their membership in, in the Jewish uh, nation. Um, now, the concept of crimes against humanity is then fo uh, folded into the Genocide Con Convention, which criminalizes attempts to exterminate groups based on race, religion, or, ethnic or ethnicity. Um, now, again, the concept of genocide is, is conceptually and morally distinct from other types of political violence. Um, let's say war crimes. With a war crime, you, you kill an individual uh, as a means to an end because of, of what they do or are suspected to have done. The concept of genocide or, or crimes of, against humanity is intended to identify violence where people are killed simply because of who they are. So there's really an attempt there to capture something that's conceptually and very and morally distinct. Um, and so the, the, the central achievement of this concept of crimes against humanity and the concept of genocide was to provide a conceptual and legal tool to recognize and prevent future 
future attempts to define and exterminate groups. Um, you know, that was the real attempt to even come up with this concept. Uh, it was not to enshrine individual rights, as louder bucked. And, you know, the, the people who articulate this ideology today, people like, you know, uh, R.E.A. Nair or um, Jeffrey Roberts, Robertson, Ken Roth, I mean, they all kind of repeat this, this ideology of individual rights, even when discussing the concept of crimes against humanity. Um, second, um, Lauterpach's notion that all the Nuremberg judgment did was to establish individual criminal accountability for Nazi crimes is also reductionist, in my opinion. Um, if you go back to the, the Nuremberg judgment, it also criminalized several elite Nazi organizations, such as the Gestapo, the SS, and the leadership corps of the Nazi party. It labeled these as criminal organizations. And I think this aspect of the, of the Nuremberg judgment has been completely forgotten in our contemporary histories of the Nuremberg trial. The purpose of criminalizing these organizations was primarily preventive and, and symbolic to make the point that the mere existence and membership in a political organization such as really the Nazi party, but yes, it, it only criminalized certain of the elite units of, of the regime. But, um, but it, was, it was to make the point that you know an organization that articulated such barbaric doctrines that called for the extermination of groups, uh, that the extermination of Jews, that this should be viewed as criminal. And I'll just read you, uh, you know, if Justice Jackson's statement to the court, and he's a wonderful writer. I encourage everyone to go back and read his arguments because um, they're very powerful. Um, in administering preventive justice with a view to forestalling repetition of these crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, it would be a great catastrophe to acquit these organizations, wait, sorry, it would be a greater catastrophe to acquit these organizations than it would be to acquit the entire 22 individual defendants in the box. These defendants, uh, these defendants' power for harm is spent. That of these organizations goes on. If they are exonerated here, the German people will infer that they did no wrong and will easily be regimented in reconstituting organizations under new names behind the same program. So he actually felt that the criminalization of these, of these organizations was more important than the prosecution of the individual defendants at, at Nuremberg. Um, so, uh, you know, I think when, when you go back and, and start to look at the international legal precedents that uh, human rights groups want, want to draw on, I think that you can see that the post-war architects really intended to illuminate and prioritize organized attempts to exterminate groups. Um, certainly, the Genocide Convention is the only convention which imposes a duty to prevent on the international community, as opposed to a duty to just prosecute after the fact. Again, why does this matter? Uh, in my mind, it's their belief that their mission is to defend individual rights and to only see the world politics in terms of, of individuals that these groups really have not prioritized crimes directed against collectives, um, organized attempts to exterminate groups. So they're, they're not seeing these aspects of our political world, collective movements, political ideologies, political doctrines. They don't think that these are serious factors in, in global politics. Um, they want to treat political violence like domestic murder as an individual phenomenon. And I think when you're looking at international relations, you, you just can't draw, you, you can't look at them and treat them in, in the same way. 
So when you look at the recent reports, let's say the, let's say the Goldstone report, you can read a 600-page report on that conflict and not see one line about Hamas's ideology. And you know, obviously, human rights groups defend their positions with scrupulous legal arguments. What I'm trying to do and to show is, is to show the genealogy of these ideas and, um, and to suggest that there are other alternative inter interpretations of international law. Um, and they've kind of got it into, they've adopted one, one approach, which isn't the one I think that the founders of international law, um, who rebuilt the global moral order, or, order after World War II from the ashes of, of the Holocaust, I, I don't think that that's what they intended. Um, so anyway, that's <laughs> to give you some example of what I'm trying to do. Thank you. So, so, I think, yeah, so thank you for your paper. I think your work is, is really good and important to uh, continue success. Okay. But, but, but my question right. though, okay. um, so I think your, your point in, in sort of the context and how, um, you know, for example, the coastal, coastal report, there's no sort of contextualization. Yeah. Uh, not only the ideology, but sort of the uh, political and military situation, in a sense, but certainly the ideology. And yet, and, and you speak about how international law is based on individual notions and individual rights. But it seems to me, as a non-legal person kind of following the situation, that in the 